Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and we are an award-winning, chart-topping, dialogue podcast. Some people even call us an oddcast. And we feature real, different conversations with legendary people about the companies and ideas that make a difference. Today, entrepreneur turned activist Andy Rue Forrest, and he's the founder of a fascinating nonprofit called feelgoodvoting.org. And uh, their mission is to get more people in the United States to vote. Now, given, uh, given that, I got a question for you. Who won the last election in the United States? Well, of course, we all know that uh, President Donald Trump won the Electoral College, and that's why he's president. On the overall vote, the quote-unquote popular vote, he got 63 million votes. Hillary Clinton got 66 million votes. But here's the truth. Neither one of them won. The real winner of the last election in the United States was apathy. You see, apathy got 100 million votes because 100 million people did not vote in the 2016 U.S. presidential election in the United States. On this episode, we dig into why and, most importantly, what can be done about it. Also off the top, I want to say thank you again for your notes of support. This has been a terrible time for our family as we deal with the loss of my brother-in-law. And right after that happened, um, all hell broke loose in Northern California. At one point, there were over 600 fires burning in Northern California, including a massive, quote-unquote, monster here in the Santa Cruz area that caused many evacuations, including the evacuations of a group of our family that live in the Santa Cruz Mountains and then another group of our family that lives in San Jose. And so to say it's been a trying time is putting it mildly. And at one point, it looked like Santa Cruz itself might have to evacuate. Neighboring town, um, Scotts Valley, did have to evacuate. And uh, so we've been through a hell of a time. I want to acknowledge the legendary firefighters, uh, peace officers, and first responders who've been fighting um, these fires. I also want you to know I'm a little raw and very pissed off. And here's why. What happened here recently with the fires, in my opinion, is a disgusting display of the California's government's inability to do job number one, which is protect the people of California and to protect California itself. And here in California, I would argue that the massive failures of both dealing with the fires and the coronavirus are eerily similar and represent, in my opinion, a complete and total breakdown by the state and federal government to protect its own people. And I'm disgusted by it. And uh, for that reason and many others, I think it's important to vote. And I think it's terrible that our government did not act quickly with known problems that have known solutions, and most importantly, in neither case, deployed the U.S. military at scale. And in so doing, many people have died, and uh, much has been destroyed here in California. And our first responders, our healthcare heroes, our firefighters, our peace officers have had to fight, whether it's the coronavirus or these horrible fires, with uh, two arms tied behind their backs because 
the cavalry never showed up. And I think that's disgusting, both at the state and the federal level. And we get into it in this conversation, Andy and I. We are sponsored, as always, by our friends at Oracle NetSuite. Visit netsuite.com slash different to learn more about the world's number one cloud ERP system. And our friends at Splunk are the global leaders in data to everything. Visit splunk.com slash D to E. Now, Andy and I are going to get right into it in this episode, what the research says about who votes in America uh, and, and, and who doesn't vote in America and why. Uh, how politicians going negative, attacking other politicians, actually destroys the category called politician and drives disengagement and dissatisfaction among the voters and electorate. How Feel Good Voting, which is Andy's organization, is creatively and innovatively using social media to encourage people to register and to vote. Go to Lockhead.com for the key show notes for this episode, key takeaways, and uh, for some of the resources that Andy talks about in our discussion. And also, while you're at Lockhead.com, why not subscribe to our uh, newsletter, The Difference? Now, hey-ho, let's go. So, Andy, I got a million questions for you, Um, but maybe the first one is, why don't people in America vote? That's a good question. I think there's different reasons. One thing which is which is kind of remarkable, there's a recent study that came out by the Knight Foundation, which is called um, the Hundred Million Project. And it's a really good survey of about 14,000 people across America um, and why they don't vote. And different demographics, psychographics, breaking them down different ways. But one thing which is, which is pretty clear is that most of those people are young, 18 to 30 years old. And in that, in that report, there's a bunch of different reasons, like my vote won't matter, it doesn't make a difference, or I don't understand what's going on, or I shouldn't vote because I don't know enough. But I'm, I'm actually kind of skeptical about people self-reporting the reason that they don't do something. Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure we always know our motivations. And so I think for why we're doing things and why we're not doing things. And, and that's part of, part of what our group does is that we, we study the behavior science about those types of issues. A lot of it is habitual. You know, a lot of people voted because they grew up in a family where their parent took them to the polling station and they remember uh, their mom voting and they went into a booth and pulled the curtain and flipped the levers, you know, and um, and a lot of people who don't vote have no tradition of that in their family. Hmm. So, I mean, maybe it's a duh, but if my parents don't give a shit about voting, then I don't either. I just I grew up I grew up in a household where nobody cared about it or did it. So I just don't think about it. Well, I guess there's many things that your parents probably didn't do or did, and, and you changed your ways. Right. Because we're not exactly like our parents. We did change some of our behaviors. Uh, it does tend that that type of civic engagement and the and the value that people see in voting does tend to, you know, it certainly helps if you grew up in a family that, that was voting. So, um, but I think a lot of it, 
there's a fundamental mis I think uh, kind of misunderstanding, and it's and it's a misunderstanding which is pervasive in politics, and that is that people in politics really think it's about the issues. If that if you just understood the issues the way that I understand the issues, you would you would agree with me, or you would vote, or you would take action, or you would get involved. Um, because this is so important. Don't, don't you see, understand the issues, but really a lot of why we do any action, including voting is not so much about the issues, but about our identity, about who we mm. think we are. There's a reason you don't litter. There's a reason you don't steal. There's a reason, uh, you know, that you, you have, you practice many different behaviors. And a lot of it is because you don't think of yourself as that person. Or you think I am the kind of person who lives in a civic society. I'm going to wear a mask when there's a pandemic. I'm going to take care of other people around me. I'm not going to litter. And, and, and voting is something that we all do together. I know that I personally am probably not going to, yes. going to determine the outcome of a vote, but I still am going to vote. Yes. And it's interesting. Uh, so I'm a naturalized American from Canada. Um, I grew up in Montreal. Where are you from? I see you went to McGill. Which, Mont Montreal. Yeah. And I see you went to McGill. That's cool. I bet you had a good time there, didn't you? <laughs> I did have a good time. I did. I was trying to go to school in Cuba and I couldn't get my visa cleared. And I thought, I'm going to go to Montreal and establish residency. And eventually I'll, I'll, I'll be able to go, get a visa to, into Cuba. But uh, I went to Montreal. I fell in love with the city. I fell in love with a woman. I didn't leave. Yeah. <laughs> really? I, I'm so shocked. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, I know this is probably terrible, but so what? Why stop now? Montreal has some of the most amazing women on planet Earth. I don't care what anyone says, <laughs> including my mother, for the record. Yeah, it's just a, a beautiful, fascinating city. And there's not, you know, there's no place like it in North America. There's no really strong bilingual city like that, you know, that's dealing with its bilingualism officially and unofficially every day. Yeah. I mean, the closest in America I've been able to find would be, of course, New Orleans, right? Where it, it there's this term we have in Canada that I'm sure you're aware of called, quote unquote, distinct society, right? Mm. When you're in Montreal, it doesn't feel like just another uh, Anglo-Saxon North American city, v very much yeah. so, right? right? And so New Orleans feels that that distinct, if you will, Montreal more so, but that's the closest I've been able to find in the U.S. Yeah, and and Miami also has you know some some vibrant cultures that are living next next to each other and amidst each other. But in Montreal, you get to they they argue about it. You know, they argue about the the structure of it and the political the politics of it. So it's fascinating. Yes, to watch it uh, right out on the street and in the newspaper. And I grew up with a fairly politically interested, if not active family. My, my parents talked about it. My uncle Jimmy is a now retired political uh, science professor at a college in Montreal at uh, John Abbott college. I can remember being young, uh, six or seven and asking him, uncle Jimmy, how do you get a law changed? <laughs> uh -huh, nice. Um, and I can remember my mom going to vote and going with her and all those sorts of things. And then as an American now, I just believe it's your civic duty. I'm deeply honored to have an American passport and to become an American citizen. I love this country. I love it as much as my home country of Canada. 
And, you know, I live in a part of the United States where my vote for president, I think you can argue, doesn't matter that much because of the way the Electoral College works, which I think is blasphemy, but that's a whole other topic. But to your point, I still vote. And obviously, the vote for president is important, but certainly I've learned how important the vote for who we send to the Senate and the state is and uh, who we elect at our school board level is. And I've gotten to know our county leadership uh, much more since C-19 hit and uh, and on and on and on. And so I think voting is really important. But when I look at your data, and of course I knew this, but I hadn't thought much about it until preparing to have this conversation with you. You know, people say, well, who won the last election? You know, was it Hillary won the popular vote and Trump won the electoral college? Well, when I look at the data, the truth is who won the last election was nobody, right? Because nobody got way more votes than either Clinton or Trump. And so anonymous or nobody or apathy is the number one candidate, at least in the last election. And is apathy going to win the 2020 election as well? Well, we'll have to see. There's so many unknown wild cards, including the, the, the COVID situation. In 18 and 19, we had more engagement. There was some evidence that um, engagement is, is going to go up. So um, it's, you know, historically, voter turnout pretty much follows age. So the average voting age in this country is about 58 years old, which is amazing. And 65, the 65 year olds and over white 65 year olds and, and up are the most consistent voters in terms of going to the polls. It boggles the mind a little bit or it boggles some of our minds that there's many white older Americans who are right now deciding whether they're going to vote for Trump or Biden that might seem that decision might seem preposterous to many of us but most of the money in this campaign upwards of 2 billion dollars is going to be spent on that demographic because they show up and vote the number of people in that as you said there you know the largest block of the US electorate didn't vote in the last presidential election and that's about 100 million people and and when you compare that hundred million people who sat on the sidelines to the number of people who determined the the outcome of the presidential election because of the electoral college, you come up with it there. That, that was about 107,000 people. So it's about one tenth of 1% of the non-voters that determined the presidential part of the election. I just wanted to underscore what you said. The, the last election came down to because of the electoral college, about 100,000 votes. Is that right? About 107, yeah. Yeah, that, that was sort of vaguely the number in my mind. Yeah. And so, you know, after the last election, we heard a lot of people say, hey, you say your vote doesn't matter. It does matter because a relatively small percentage of the United States decided it was going to be President Trump as opposed to President Clinton. Yes. Well, of course, it depends, again, where your your identity is. I mean, 11,000 people determined the the, the the vote in Michigan. It came down to 11,000 votes. That's, you know, by political standards, razor thin. Yep. Now, is any one person, could any one person change the outcome in Michigan? No. So if you look at one person, no, they're not going to change the vote. But, but, uh, but obviously, when you start to look at people whose identity, like yours, is in the aggregate, they feel like they live in a civic society, then it doesn't take very many of them to determine the outcome. 
of the vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, so part of the answer to the question of why don't I vote is I lived in a family that didn't vote and it wasn't important. A uh, part of it is I don't know the issues. Part of it is that there's so much emphasis on Biden and Trump that I don't have the idea, I don't associate, as you do, as you just articulated, that uh, voting for my city council or voting for my mayor is the way I change the chief of police or police policy in my city. Yes. So associating voting with with life on your street or life in your city is something which um, needs to needs to happen in this country. Well, and I'll tell you, and I took a lot of heat for it, and I don't care. I think anybody who says defund the police has got their heads screwed on backwards. And as David Crane taught me, we, in the state of California anyway, we've been defunding education for a very long time. And we've been defunding education to communities of colored people uh, or people of color, black, brown, et cetera. And so it, it just, you got to dig into these issues. And as soon as this defund the police nonsense started, I sent an email to our county supervisor that represents our district. And I said to him, Supervisor Leopold, what's going on here? And he responded immediately and said, there will be no defunding the police, in this case, the sheriff's office in Santa Cruz County. Well, I appreciate that I can email my elected official in my community and get a straight answer and uh, and feel confident in our um, funding of our sheriff's office. Mm-hmm. And I just so why don't people care about this stuff more? Why why are so many people this apathetic? Whether it's at the presidential level or in their own local community, why don't they give a shit? Yeah, I'm 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 thinking of that that at the fun, at that type of fundamental level, you know, if you poll young people in particular about issues and what they care about, you get pretty high, you get pretty high scores about caring about the world and about caring about social justice, caring about environmental sustainability, but they don't, it doesn't necessarily translate into voting. They don't see voting as the, as the lever of change that's going to that's going to really bring about the changes that they want to see. Are they right? Are we stupid in thinking that voting is a key mechanism for driving change, whether it's uh, you care about the environment or you care about the police or you care about school funding or whatever the in, uh, immigration? I don't think they're uh, right. Uh, you think voting matters? Yeah, I think voting matters. But I think that a lot of it has become very indirect. You know, when you start to when you start to think about the way that state legislators really influence the districting and and how you know the present administration took control over ten years of redistricting in the country and and various undemocratic pr- uh, properties, I think that it's um, uh, it becomes very indirect. And especially because I think there's a lot of emphasis yeah. on national politics, on beltway politics. Well, and as David Crane educated me, the vast majority of what affects our day-to-day lives is very local, is at the state level and at the local level, right? How our roads are, how right. our schools are, how our police is, uh, what's going on in our neighborhoods, absolutely, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And as I realized, because I'd never gotten into local politics until C-19 hit, 
and I was very concerned that our our county and region was getting was on the precipice of getting it very wrong and was 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 very ill prepared and so I dug in pretty hard pretty quick and um you know I learned a lot as a result of that I learned David Crane is absolutely right and I did learn that a small group of committed people with some good elected officials and some good other public servants, and I use that word as a laudatory phrase, um, you can get something done and you can get something done quickly. I also learned something very interesting, which is whether you're an elected official or a fire chief or a police chief or, or, or some kind of a um, public servant of consequence, you need air cover from your constituents, from your community. Mm-hmm. Hanging out on the ledge by yourself is not a fun thing to do, mm-hmm. uh, whether you're the sheriff or whether you're um, the mayor. Mm-hmm. And, and and I had no, maybe I'm just naive, Andy, but I didn't mm-hmm. realize how much a relatively small group of people could come together and support uh, local leadership on a topic and help them get something done by, in part, providing them with some air cover. Yeah. Or the converse, of course, about how a small group of people can often, you know, rip apart um, what people are trying to do. How how did that bear out in Santa Cruz? Or what did you what how did you see that coming into play in Santa Cruz? Well, what happened was at the beginning of C-19, I was afraid that we were not prepared for uh, a surge in in cases and potentially deaths. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to see the plan. And there were other adjacent counties that were being very, very transparent in terms of hospital readiness, ventilators, Mm -hmm. PPE, you know, all the things that we have now learned that you need to focus on in a pandemic. And the data was not forthcoming in Santa Cruz. And I, like you, I'm a business guy and uh, in business, we get trained very quickly where there's a lack of transparency. There's either nefarious shit going on or incompetent shit going on. Mm-hmm. But when you're on top of something, y- you have no concern about being fully transparent. Mm-hmm. And so what I perceived as a lack of transparency compared particularly to other adjacent counties, um, I believe did represent a um, lack of planning. And so um, a group of us got to work. And yeah. uh, I think we made some people, some elected people not like us very much. But at the same time, I also, as as much as I was being aggressive, uh, I also tried to make it very clear, Andy, we are here to help. What does our community need? Oh, we need PPE. So we went and sourced some PPE. Oh, the problem is in the food banks. Okay. Let's focus on the et cetera, et cetera. So, so trying to push them in the right direction and at the same time, trying to have a dialogue around where is the need now and what can those of us who are committed to making a difference and who are in a position to make a difference, what can we do to step in? So I, 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 I didn't want it to feel like I was just out of the tent pissing in, that I was willing to get in the tent and piss out. But at the same time, we needed some transparency. And, and that transparency then came. Um, right. And then we had disagreements around beach closures and things along those lines. And, and I think we ultimately got into a good push and pull. And I think the county took um, appropriate action and it, it has showed up in our numbers. And so yeah. I appreciated their responsiveness. I was probably more aggressive than maybe I needed to be. Mm-hmm. And I apologized for that. But at the same time, a group of us did partner with our local leadership and, and our county's done a pretty good job on C-19. And, and I think that has come because 
I think authentically, many of our elected officials, many of our appointed officials do care. And many of our citizens got very, very busy in yeah. helping, in pushing, in shining a light. Yeah. And that's and that type of success, and it sounds like a great success, you know, it 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 breeds and it fosters more success with everybody who's involved for more work on COVID or for more work on the next issue. There is a self there is a um a civic self-esteem that people have uh and a and a belief that hey my involvement actually helps it can make a difference i can change the world i live in and we see that to be true about voting as well that the people who you know who get engaged who knock on doors or who make phone calls or who get engaged at some level feel better and they keep going um they feel more like they can make a difference Mm-hmm. So um, that's really key. I would say, you know, to 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 friends and relatives when they complain too much or they feel despondent or depressed about the the way the the direction that things are moving. I think one of the the, the best antidotes is, hey, get involved a little bit, roll up your sleeves a little yeah. bit. You know, what what part of this do you believe in? Where do you want to make a difference? Yeah, and and um, you know, we don't hear the word citizen and citizenry very much. Um, mm-hmm. And as a naturalized American, at least I had an experience of the U.S. government welcoming me and sort of saying, hey, and I can't remember exactly how they put it. But, you know, once I became a citizen, the officer who uh, approved me for citizenship sort of said, I, and again, I can't remember the exact words, but was like, hey, go forward and be a good person in the United States. And, and yeah. thank you for being here. You know, please go make a contribution. Right. Yeah. And it might sound corny to some, but it's like, yeah. And and we had um, we've had uh, four star general Stanley McChrystal on multiple times. And, you know, he makes the comment that the United States is a country that doesn't ask anything of us. You know, it's not like Israel, by way of example, where everybody has to do several uh, years of mm-hmm. service to the country. And so America mm-hmm. is a country that gives a lot and asks its citizens to do really nothing in return. And so, I don't know, I think more of us should have to fucking do something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, like Carter, uh, President Carter wanted to have a civil draft. It wasn't a necessarily a military draft, but he, I think it was kind of akin to the Peace Corps where he wanted everybody, uh, rich or poor, um, to to engage that way and spend a couple of years of their life on civic matters. There's not even that many, you know, not even, there's not even that many civic equalizers, really, um, that we all, that we all engage in. I think the fact that people all, whether you're rich or poor, you have to go down to the Department of Motor Vehicles and get a driver's license is kind of one of the, the, the last places where you know you know that and maybe Lamont's classes when you're pregnant is kind of the last cross sections of America that you <laughs> see where people come come together and you you see a nice cross section of all walks of life um, in there it's kind of an equalizer a healthy equalizer I wish it was part of the political conversation I mean I, I don't know that making it mandatory is the right answer, but if there was a program for people from I don't know I'll make up the numbers 18 to 21 and you could choose to serve six months or or that entire period and we paid you a little to do it and we trained you in some skills uh and and maybe it had something to do with education or maybe there was a massive break for education for doing it there's got to be a a program that we could create for 
younger people or people of any age, really. But I mean, it makes sense that it'd be around that age where they raise their hand and say, hey, I want to go help. And whether it's building homes yeah. a la Habitat for Humanity or picking up garbage or if you have a skill and you can teach somebody something or wh- whatever it is, you could imagine a civic program with an incentive for people to go do that program. That would make a giant difference in our communities and to your point, Andy, would create a sense of civic connectedness where people of uh, different backgrounds, um, uh, different economic ca- uh, capabilities and histories could come together and, hey, let's build a house together or let's fix a road together. Yeah, I think there I think actually, I don't know, isn't there something that's called um, California Core or something like that or that? I mean, it's probably not very uh, lauded or um but I think, or at least there used to be something like that where you could spend a couple of of years kind of or a gap year in the in the in this California state program in p- doing public works. But I don't know how i don't I don't know if it was as enlightened as as or have had the branding of um, really i'm helping my I'm helping my state, I'm helping my people. Um, I'm giving something back here with my life. I'm doing the right thing. You know, I wonder, maybe this is too much of a side note, but the what appears to be the uh, demise of scouting, Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts, you know, there was a, a civic element there that I think a lot of us participated in. Uh, I certainly know there's a lot of wonderful faith-based organizations that have this as a core tenant, and so it's great to see that happening. But, um, yeah, I think... I think uh, uh, ask what you can do for your country is a really good question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so why don't you tell me a little bit about what your organization is trying to do to encourage that, uh, you said 18 to 30 year olds who typically don't vote to give a shit and and maybe start a new tradition in their lives. Well, we come at it from a behavioral science point of view. We 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 follow certain precepts of, of behavioral science, actually, that we're explored at first and really documented by a team of psychologists near you at Stanford University, Albert Bandura, and a bunch of folks who came after him. And what, a lot of what that behavioral science says is that the way that humans learn behaviors uh, is from role models and from peer groups and in indirect messages, instead of people telling you what to do people modeling what to do and you're following that. And if you think back to, you know, your early caregivers, your parents maybe, or this great teacher you had in school or somebody you looked up to, uh, older brother, older sister, um, is that these people really influenced your behavior. And still, by and large, they're still influencing our behavior. We like to think of ourselves as independent, smart, independent thinkers who are kind of weighing the pros and cons of every decision but in fact, we're mostly influenced by what our, our, our peer group and our, our co-workers and people or our neighbors, people around us are doing. There's this famous Bandura experiment, uh, the, psych- psych- the psychological experiment where there's 10 people sitting at a table and there's a large object. There's like a, a large boot and a tiny marble that are put on the table and they're pat and they're given to the first person. And, and the question is, which one is bigger? And the first person says the marble is bigger and passes them on to the next person. And the first, and actually all nine people say that the marble is bigger. And the reason they say that is because they are all part of the experiment. The only actual 
person who's being tested is the person person sitting in the tenth chair, and ninety two percent of the time when it comes around to them, they say the marble is bigger, which is just I guess you know that might be called peer pressure, but it is really because humans, amongst all animals, even amongst primates, really learn from just watching other humans and adopt those adapt those behaviors. So. Where are 18 to 30 year olds? You know, if you look at the numbers of people watching the, the convention, the Democratic convention or the Republican convention right now, they're not watching. They're not, they're not there. There's a couple of million people in this country. You know, there's 20, 30 million people who are, who are 60 years old who are watching it. And there's one or two million people who are, uh, 18 to 24 watching it, even though there's a lot more 18 to 30 year olds than there are older people. Only 9% of Gen Z even go to a news source on any kind of media. And they self-report that they get enough news by going to, uh, from their friends and from entertainment sites uh, on the internet. So, but they, but 95% of them are on the internet. You know, I mean, you don't, that's kind of a no die. You know, if you know a young person, if you know a person between, I don't know, eight years old or 10 years old and, and, and 25 years old, you know, they're on social media. So that's where their attention is. And that's where we reach them. And we reach them with, we don't call them role models anymore. We call them these days, we call them influencers. And we particularly go after micro influencers on the internet, on social media platforms, micro influencers, depending on what platform you're on, uh, have a different definition, but we 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 really recruit and we partner with micro influencers who have a following of maybe ten thousand, all the way up to a million followers on social media. And these people are not necessarily talking about politics. They might be talking about makeup or hair or their pets. And we partner with them to weave a voting message into their regular programming, and then we put a link as close as we can get it to that message. And if you click on that link, you can go right into our voting tools and you can register to vote. You can get a ballot by mail. You can find your polling place. You can verify your address, which is very important because almost half of young people have moved in the last five years. So they're somewhat, it can be confusing about where your ballot might be coming. So, um, and then the last thing we do is we tag every, with a data tag, we put, we, we tag every message and every influencer. And so we're tracking all of this and we can optimize the system by increasing those messages and those influencers who are converting viewers into voters. And that's what we're doing. We're, we're really going after people who, as we've been talking about earlier, aren't voting but we're using their influencers, the people who kind of shape their behaviors, the people who shape their identities. And we're telling, and those people are advocating, those are the ones who are saying, come on, let's do this together, let's vote, it's really important for these reasons. And then we make it easy for them to click and slide right into the funnel of practicing voting behaviors. So I don't know if you knew this, Andy, but, I actually have 6 million followers on um, TikTok who like to watch me prance around in a thong with cat ears on. So I'm the kind of influencer you're looking I gotta, for. I got to, I got to, I got to, I'm going to, I'm going to look that up as soon as, as soon as we stop this conversation, <laughs> that's how I'm going to spend the rest of my afternoon. 
TikTok is very productive for <laughs> you know, us. Is it really? Oh, yeah. It's very productive for us. I bet it is. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, a I do lot not of, have a TikTok a, account for the record. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's you, you were, you, 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 you were scaring me for a minute, but then I, I, I caught on, um, but I, I might kind of be, be burdened with that visual image for a little while. Um, but, uh, but TikTok is very productive for us. And there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people are just scrolling and browsing through TikTok, looking for things that they get that they're like oh yeah i want to dress like that i want to do that i want to dance like that i want to move like that i want to listen to music like that they're looking for the for the person on tiktok people are browsing and they're looking for the person that they would like to become and that's a powerful thing i'm looking for mm -hmm. the person that i want to become right and that's we're just trying to put voting in that path and you are paying these influencers just like a lipstick brand or a T-shirt brand or what, whatever, are, are you not? About half of them. Some of them, um, you know, want to be paid. Most of them discount the price because they believe in what we're doing. And well, that, that, that's, that's good to hear. Yeah. And some of them say, no, you don't have to pay me. I want to do this. Um, but more so the people on Instagram than TikTok. The TikTokers like to get paid. Yeah. The TikTokers like to get paid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but they, no, they generally give you a little bit of a break compared to the lipstick company or the t-shirt oh, company. They, yeah. They give us quite a break. Yeah. They give us a big break. Yeah. And, um, and we, we, they have to be into it. They have to think this is a good idea. If it just is, if it's just a, you know, like a product placement, it doesn't work because it needs to be authentic. Whatever they're doing needs to be true. Uh, it needs to come from their heart. People who are 18 to 24 actually are way better than you and me in knowing when something is real and authentic and not, you know, and not a corporate endorsement. They're, they're, mm. they're way better at deciphering that because they, they've only known a world in, with, with that type of social media. And and you folks generally prefer what you call a micro influencer as opposed to you know Dwayne the Rock Johnson who recently I heard gets a million dollars for a post on Instagram. Yeah, it's 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 amazing, isn't it? Um, it's a sh it's shocking to, to I mean, and hey, go rock, go. I mean, I, I don't yeah. don't begrudge the guy his yeah. success. It's just I heard this I, I heard this recently that it was a million bucks a throw for the Rock. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> If you want to get um, a brand out there or you just want to introduce the idea of something to somebody, if you want to uh, just you're announcing that, you know, there's a new Apple product, um, then you can use a celebrity and you'll get a very wide exposure. But if you want to change somebody's behavior, if you want to change a deep rooted cognitive norm, um, then you have to really use a friend of that person or a role model who has sway. And what's interesting is that as somebody's following, uh, statistically, as somebody's following goes down from celebrity to, to mega influencer to micro influencer to peer group, the engagement level goes up. So I'm more likely to change a deeply rooted behavior when people um, in my community um, are, 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 are telling me that this would be a good thing to do. And the micro influencer is closer to my best friend that, than Dwayne the rock. Yeah. 
that that makes total sense to me, having personally experienced it. In what way? Well, I'm a super consumer of podcasters before I started, and the podcasters I like, now many of them have become friends, but they do feel like a friend. Right. And then on the flip side, now as a podcaster, it's it's a bizarre experience, but I'm now very used to it. And the bizarre experience, it, particularly for somebody like myself, who I, I don't play a character, right? There's a lot of, you know, I call them mm-hmm. hustle porn stars. Mm-hmm. And what I always love is, you know, you're in the green room with them before the podcast and they're talking like a normal person the way you and I are. Mm-hmm. And then they hit record and then they go, hey, welcome to the <laughs> And then they start spouting off all this, you know, follow your passion and <laughs> what the fuck happened to you? Who are you, man? But, you know, um, so I... Given that I'm just yeah. myself, uh, the reality is if you're a person who listens to uh, our podcast on any kind of a regular basis, you actually do know me. And right. so when when we meet at a, you know, if I'm speaking or a book signing or or whatever, sometimes just in a coffee shop, whatever it is, the weird experience that's an unusual human experience, Andy, is they already know me. So from a relationship perspective, they're on second or third base. We're deeply familiar. And of course, I just met them. And so I've had to learn how to get get to where they are with them uh, the way they are with me as quickly as possible because it's a it's a strange conversation right. in the beginning. Right. Um, but anyway, I can see what you mean that that if you're whether it's a podcaster or or somebody doing these TikTok videos or whatever the hell it is, they become like a friend. Yeah. And you've listened to a lot of podcasts and you've seen a lot of podcasts. You've you've learned different tricks of the trade from many different places and you've incorporated things that you saw that inspired you. And there were probably some people out there who inspired you multiple times and you might have incorporated three or four things that they taught you. Now, that person is kind of more of an influencer for you. And you and you think of them, oh, this is a pretty smart person. This is somebody who's got who's 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 like, I want to listen to what they say. And and so for people who on the from the following side, from people who are who are tuning in to this podcast or to any of your podcasts um, on a regular basis, um, you know, you have quite a bit of sway with them. They obviously uh, you have because of the engagement you have. Yeah. And it's it's not something I really understood until I started to do it, that that you could be a person in in somebody's life that they look forward to hanging out with. And I'll never forget a couple of years ago, I was on a speaking tour with our friends at NetSuite and this guy came up to me and he said, look, I, I don't want to sound weird or whatever, but um, I just want to tell you how it is for me. Uh, you and I are good friends. We get together a couple times a week. We drink scotch and beer and we have these amazing conversations that I find fascinating. And we really enjoy hanging out with each other, talking to these people, drinking scotch. And he said, look, I know you and I don't know each other. I'm not nuts, but I just want you to know that's how it has become over time. And uh, I never, I have never forgotten that conversation. Yeah. And I think one thing which is great about you and the pod and, and your podcasts, which I can't separate those two things, is that your journey, your personal journey, because you're not that guy who has a, a different character, you are an authentic character, um, is that your the journey that you're on, the journey that brought a Canadian to America, that you're in love with America, that you're that you, you know, uh, 
reached out, you got involved in Santa Cruz and county uh, politics, all of that stuff is, is, is the journey of a person. But so many people are sharing that journey with you. And it's inspirational for so many people that, that you'll, you'll never know about. You will never know the number of people that, um, you know, have, have, if, if they could all stand up and say, Hey, thanks for making my life better, Christopher. Um, that would be a beautiful thing, you know, but, um, but, uh, yeah, anyway, a little bit, there's a little gratitude for you there. Thank you. And, and, and I am very lucky that, uh, uh, rarely now does a day go by without somebody sending me something nice. So that, 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 Mm -hmm. that part is very cool. And I, I can't, I don't, I'll never wrap my head around the fact that we're in 181 countries. There's somebody in Nepal who's downloaded us, but, uh, and so, so it's working with these micro uh, influencers is, is what I think I'm hearing from you because of this, this relationship they have with, with their folks. It is. We are getting millions of views and we're getting thousands of people to come off the sidelines and to register to vote and to um, request mail-in ballots. And pretty soon we're going to start uh, pivoting a little bit and, you know, talking about how, what to do with those mail-in ballots, those absentee ballots, and whether you should mail them back in or take them down to a ballot box. But yeah, it's working. It's thrilling to see because we're getting people who aren't necessarily watching the news or paying um, attention to the issues or even, you know, turning out to people who are talking about the issues. A lot of young people followed Bernie, but a lot of young people didn't follow Bernie because it, he he was talking just about the issues, and there's a, and, and that that's not the way that all of us can access civic engagement. It is interesting. I've been reading a lot about how uh, this uh, presidential election is shaking out to be much more personality oriented and much less issue oriented, and that the Democrats last time around. We're trying to be policy oriented, you know, the sort of if you think about the Al Gore policy wonk type uh, approach. Uh, and and I think Hillary, you could argue that she was sort of in that camp um, versus a personality. And that this time it's 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 gone more in that direction. And I, I don't this is just a gut. I'd be curious what you think. It seems like that's where we are today, that. If I trust the person communicating or presenting or whatever it is they're doing, then I'm open to them. But I sort of, I have to get to know the person first before I'm going to listen to the issues, uh, as opposed to maybe there was a point in time, maybe there wasn't, you'll tell me, where somebody's position on an issue you would find interesting, and then maybe you'd be curious about them as a person, but it seems like it's the other way around. But but how, how does it look to you, Andy? Well, I think that's always been the case that there's always been a cult of personality in, 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 in politics. You can go back and read, you know, Thucydides and Pericles, and you'll see that's that, that at least in Western documented history, that's, you know, that, that that's always been the case. I think mass media has changed things. The Trump campaign in the 2016 election was, didn't have the media funding that the Clinton administration had. They couldn't afford as much television. So they really turned to social media and they did, regardless of what you might think about the, about the campaign, they did a very effective job on social media about, um, 
kind of creating the type of fear that they're in the process of trying to create now about, um, you know, fear and fraud. And they did a a very uh, effective job with Hillary talking about how she was trouble and she was crooked and et cetera. So that type of that type of media has been shown the data shows that that type of media has a polarizing effect and it has an effect that it turns people off of the system. It's much easier if you use fear tactics and negative um, type of advertising, you can turn vast numbers of people off from participating because they get disgusted. And, and, and uh, you can also convince somebody to come to your side. This is another thing I've been dying to talk to you about, which is from a marketing category perspective, as a three-time CMO, I think about things like this a lot. There's an unwritten rule in marketing that goes like this. We don't destroy the category ever. So you're never going to see United Airlines run an ad with charts that show how many people they killed last year versus United and Delta. And, you know, we kill less people than those guys, right? Because, of course, that makes everybody terrified to get on a plane. And even car companies that hang their hat on safety, like Volvo has for decades, they espouse and evangelize what they're doing from a safety perspective. They never say, oh, by the way, um, you know, if you buy a Mercedes, you're going to die, right? Or you're 2x more likely to die because, again, that's attacking the category. The seminal mistake in America, in my opinion, that politicians have made is when they say things like drain the swamp and when they say things like Washington is broken or Sacramento is this or whatever it is they say, when they attack uh, the, the, quote, system, they destroy the category. They make people not believe in flying or driving, in this case, in voting and in our democratic system. And I think they have, uh, by doing that, They've made the the category of politics unattractive. And when it's unattractive, you say, fuck it, I'm not going to vote. Right. That's my that's how I see it through a marketing lens. Is is that how you see it or how do you see uh, yeah, it? Yeah, that's that's not just how I see it, but that's what's been shown to to happen. Um there's a there's a, a well this is well documented in a book called Going Negative by a group of Stanford sociologists and academicians. And uh, that's ex- that's very a, pr- a pretty articulate description of of the way it works. Um, and there is category um, disruption now. Category category killing or category disruption can work in the short run. It can get you elected this election, um, and I think that's been shown. But it's very short sighted, and it does turn people off from the long term need for involvement and for civic engagement. Hmm. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, our, our organization is called Feel Good Voting, and it's not accidental that we're called that. We, 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 we believe that the healthiest long-term type of civic engagement, no matter what, what your views are or what your party is, is that civic engagement feels good. Just like when you got uh, involved with the health folks and with health officials in Santa Cruz around COVID, um, and you had some successes, it feels good. Your self-esteem gets boosted there. And we think that if people, more people felt good about their involvement in civics, um, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in right now. Well, and it, uh, I like feeling good just as much as the next person. Um, but the other interesting thing from the politics side is 
I, I wasn't sure whether I was or wasn't going to vote for our county supervisor when all this started. I didn't have a strong opinion of him one way or another. And I do now. I have a very strong opinion of him. And you know what? He's got my vote. Huh, nice. And the, and, the, and the reason he's got my vote is he and I didn't agree about everything. He and I had a couple of tense moments that I'm sure he didn't appreciate. And I probably went a little far, but <laughs> such is the case of my life. However, he was responsive. He was thoughtful. And it was very, very, very clear that um, he is, his name is John Leopold, is a deeply, deeply committed public servant who tried to listen and tried to do the right things. And I think on balance did. And so, like, what do you expect of these people? Like, the, what else do you want? So mm -hmm. I'm absolutely going to vote for him. And you know what? I'm going to write a check to his campaign because mm -hmm. I want him to know, hey, listen, you stood up. You went for it. You, yeah. you made some shit happen. It was tough to make happen. And I really yeah. appreciate it. And I think our community appreciates it. And so you got my vote and you got my check. Yeah, that's 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 great. That's fantastic. I, I, yeah. As a matter of fact, I would feel I would feel immoral if I didn't do that. Mm -hmm. Even though we started off disagreeing about some stuff and mm -hmm. we probably don't agree on everything right now, but that's okay. Right. Right. I'd like to see your name in the, in the, in the, in the voters pamphlets where they, where they put the endorsements down under the, under the, the rebuttal of the argument, Christopher Lockwood, that you're, that you're endorsing him. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm happy to, and I'd, I'd write it down if, 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 if required or, and asked. No. Now, I also, of course, have to ask you, Andy, um, uh, voting by mail. I voted by mail. Uh, I can't remember if it's every time since I became an American citizen. I might have voted in person once or maybe twice. I don't know. But, you know, I'm a busy person. I used to travel a tremendous amount, blah, 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 blah. So voting in person always seemed stupid to me and, and I didn't have the time. And so I voted by mail for quite some time. And uh, prior to this election, didn't really have a concern about the integrity of mail-in voting in the United States. And, uh, and so I'm curious, what, what's your current take on the mail-in voting situation? Yeah, there are some large question marks there. And um, I think that's evidenced by the fact that, that even the people that you may trust in the, in the political sphere are changing their, their story and changing their tune as, as events change on the ground. In there are states like where I live in Washington state where everybody votes by mail and we have for a long period of time and we're really set up to handle that. The I think that, you know, one huge wild card is just for states that are not set up to handle that, um, that 100 percent vote by mail is can they deal with it? Um, just could they deal with the volume of it? So that's one question. And we can't really necessarily blame um, the, 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 the Trump administration or other people who are, uh, for, for, in, for that particular problem. Um, because there's two issues, right? One is, can the, can the post deliver? Right. And the second is, can whatever structure the state has in place to count the votes, to process the votes, is that going to work right. with it, what you would assume would be an increase in mail-in voting? And those are two separate things, Riz. Yeah, there are, those are two separate things. And, but, and it's interesting that both, sides of the campaign, you know, I think that the Trump folks who have talked a lot about mail fraud and about how mail in voting can create voter fraud, um, they failed to produce evidence for that in court. And there's not, it's, it's pretty well documented that there's not much fraud in mail in voting 
but that 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 both um, parties are have have talked about have kind of politicized this, um, and that it's suspected by many people that it's being almost weaponized as a tactic to slow down the post office or uh, take out ballot boxes or take out public mailboxes. And um, and then there's certain states, of course, where it only needs to be postmarked by that date versus counted by that date. So if it has to be counted by a date, then we deal with both of the issues you're talking about, both the mail pickup and delivery, and then the state apparatus counting the vote. Yeah, if you're a mail-in voter, I suspect that the safest thing you can do is get your mail-in ballot as soon as you can, vote as early as you can, and bring it to a drop box. Now, some people would say, well, there's drop boxes, there's fraud in, in, in drop boxes because we can't track where the ballots are. But again, that has not been shown to be um, the case. The evidence is against that. So I would say that um, getting into a drop box but, and moving your whole thing as early as you can is. So that's what we've historically done, not put it in the post, but put it in a voting drop box. Right. And what date will you want people to have in mind? If I say, hey, I'm going to be voting by mail or voting by Dropbox. Maybe this is the first time I've done that. For whatever reason, I enjoy going to the polls. Um, What's the sort of date that, you know, people say, well, there's there's November and then there's the real date. Right. So what's the real date? If I want to be sure, regardless of my state and my state's ability to do all this, if I really want my vote to be counted, what what date? in October, should I be thinking is sort of my drop dead date to get this done? Yeah, well, there's a number of important dates. Of course, if you're not registered, you should get registered now as soon as you can, because um, certain states will start closing the registration window uh, early um, and um, as early as the end of, I believe, the end of September. So um Voting in certain states starts on September 18th in early voting in certain states. So um, this is all different state by state. And um, I think one of the best things you can do is go to um, you can do this by going to our website, um, feelgoodvoting.org, and you can verify your registration and that's an important thing to do because so your you want, website will tell me whether or not I'm a registered voter. That's right. That's right. You'll put your address awesome. in and and it'll and it'll come back to you within a minute. It'll tell you what you're you'll put your address in and it'll say, "Yep, you're all set. You're registered to vote vote. You're good to go." So, and you can do that at feelgoodvoting.org. And then if you want to register, you can register right on our our website. You can get an application. And if you want to get a ballot by mail, you can um you can apply for that right on our website as well. You can regardless of what state I'm in, Andy. You, regardless of what state you're in. That's correct. Now, if you want to know these deadlines that you're talking about, how early can I vote? When does registration shut down? Um, do I, is it going to be by, are we keeping track of the postmark? Or, we, or do I just have to get it in by the November 3rd? All of those types of things really do differ state by state. And vote.org has a good table for you. Um, that's just V-O-T-E, vote.org, vote.org. And they've got a good table for you where you can uh, look up your state and see what the, what the key milestones and dates are that affect your, your voting. Awesome. And, and do you have a gut feel sense, Andy? Will there be improvement in this election cycle with that 18 to 30-year-old uh, TikTok consumer? 
Well, I, Christopher, I, I'm an I'm an optimist. I, I I think there's always improvement, even when I feel, even when I shake my head and I and I shed tears. I I think that we've got to be moving in the right direction. Maybe we just had to take a few steps back. Um, <laughs> to, so, but there is some evidence to say that um, youth voting is will be up. And it has been up over the over the interim since, you know, in 18 and 19 elections. And uh, so we hope for that trend to continue. But youth voting is still the lowest bracket of turnout percentage wise. Uh, fewer 18 to 24 year olds vote than than all the other older segments, um, even though 18, there are more 18 to 30 year olds than there are other people in this country because of shifting demographics. So if young people show up, they can determine the outcome of this election. And, and, if and I when they show up and when they show up, they tend to vote for social justice and environmental sustainability. So they tend to vote for those candidates that support that. So, uh, you know, that that that's that's the message. Yeah. I, mean, I wish they knew that. I wish they knew that deep, deep down in their soul that they they've got it in their hands. But, but and it's if, so is that what you would. You know, because of course I have lots of, I have lots of young people in my life. Uh, are those the kinds of things you would want me to share with them? If I'm talking to a younger person who's saying, "Ah, oh, my vote doesn't count. I don't want to vote," whatever it is they might be saying, what what's the sales pitch you would like me to give to young people as to why they should uh, why they shouldn't be so cynical and why they should actually vote? Well, let me. I I don't know. I think there's a different there's a different thing that opens up at people's hearts and minds depending on who they are. But, but let me say this, because you're a marketing person and you understand marketing and, and maybe, maybe you can help them understand the marketing of this. And that is that in America, it's a secret ballot and we don't know who you voted for, but it's public knowledge if you voted. We know if you voted and if you didn't vote. And that's really key to our process. If you're a, a, a politician or you're a campaign the first thing that you do is you go and get the voter roll. You go and get the voter record of everybody who votes and you print it out and you can see it. And then you mm. can get a organization. There's many different organizations that can, that can run, run that voter roll through an algorithm and tell you who to market to. But if you don't vote, you're invisible. Nobody wants to do, to respond to your issues. Nobody, no politician is going to want to try to do the types of agenda which are important to you because you're not going to keep them in power. You're, you, you, you're making yourself irrelevant. You're, you're basically mm. taking a dry erase, a dry eraser and just taking yourself off the map. So, you know, I think that voting is, it, it's not like finding a bone marrow transplant. It's like, it's like catching a bus. You're not looking for a perfect match. You're looking for something to move it in the right direction. So first and foremost, don't become invisible, you know, at least stay visible and you probably won't get the perfect candidate, but we got to move this in the right direction until we get to the destination that we want to be at. It's so interesting you say that, Andy, because I do have this conversation with young people and that's exactly a place where I go to. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. There are things about both parties I think are fantastic, and there are things about both parties I feel are absolutely terrifying. And as a result, it makes voting very difficult for me. I have not had one election since I became a United States citizen where I went, 
that's the president I really want. Or, you know, it. the truth is rarely is life like that, right? And so to your point, who moves the needle in generally in the direction that I think we should be going right now? The other one that I find interesting, and, and this is much less so in Canada, in Canada, of course, we don't get to vote for the prime minister, the party that wins the most votes the prime minister, the leader of that party becomes the prime minister. And so you vote for someone in your riding and Canadians, at least historically would not necessarily always vote the same party. And in some cases, if there was somebody in your riding that you thought was a great leader that was doing a great job and they were with the party of the prime minister or prime minister candidate that you didn't like, you may actually elect to vote for that candidate because you think that's a great candidate in spite of the fact that they represent a prime minister that you wouldn't necessarily choose. And so I guess my point is it was more normal to me growing up to see people you know, not always vote the same party. It's 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 a very weird thing to say, well, you know, my father was a Democrat or a Republican and my grandfather fought for this yeah. country. And, and so it just and so I find that strange. Uh, on the other hand, maybe if you think that way, it makes voting easy for you because um, voting is very, very hard for me. But to your point, I still do it. And I look for the candidates uh, across the ballot, you know, from state and local all the way up to the president that I think represent my views as closely or at least the directions I, that I hope to see us go in. And then once they get elected, we can argue with them about where we disagree. Um, but it, it seems like more Americans don't think that way. But I, I'm curious as to your reaction. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, it's like a sports teams down here or something like that. The loyalty, the narrative is very, very strong. And I mean, even uh, I don't know how something like wearing a mask to prevent COVID has become politicized where there's like us and them. And, you know, I had some friends who were eating in a restaurant in the rural part of the country and the and they went they were taking a road trip. The server came over to them and said, I'm going to serve you. But first, take off your damn your damn Democrat masks. Um, <laughs> you know how that got associated with the sides. But the narrative is very, very strong. And I think this is because in this country, a lot of it is we're very influenced by our peer group. It's not only a strong narrative, it's not mixed up geographically. I mean, we have large clusters of people who are voting for one party who are living together in certain parts of the country and other clusters who are around each other. So I don't know what to do about that. I think the negative, the negative ads do not help that. I think the, the rhetoric uh, from a lot of politicians does not help that. I think the more bipartisan example, um, and I, and I don't mean nonpartisan, I actually mean bipartisan, where you have people from both parties working on issues and, and showing that off is important. And then the only other thing I can think of is like, let's get more Canadians down here and have them brainwash us, Christopher, because, um, because uh, <laughs> I think you've got the right idea to look, uh, to, to look through that ballot and to find, the people on, on in either party who share your values and who and who you think have a have a vision of where to take things and to get behind those folks. The other thing I just wanted to get your reaction to, I've been getting myself in a lot of trouble with the statement I'm about to make, but like like all these things, I don't care because uh, I, I think it, it, it matters. When I look at C-19 
and I look at these fires that we're experiencing in California. To me, Andy, it is eerie and shocking how similar the situations are. In that both were known and plausible scenarios that had uh, smart plans of attack to address these things. Uh, And in both cases, we didn't implement those plans. In both cases, we didn't react very quickly. And I would go so far as to say what we are witnessing here in California with the combination of the two right now is the complete and total failure of the state and the federal government's ability to do, in my opinion, their number one job, which is to protect us. And so I give the president a failing grade on C-19. I don't know how you can't. I give him good grades on other things, but on C-19, absolutely not. And same thing with Newsom. I think he has failed on, on the virus. And the fact that we had over 600 fires burning in California and he didn't ask for the U.S. military and therefore he didn't get the U.S. military. We did not deploy the number one resource we have. And Cal Fire has said consistently throughout this, this is a resource problem, that they have 10 to 20x a deficit of what they would normally have to fight these kind of fires. And we did not call in the military. And so in my opinion, the federal government on C-19, our, our state government in California on C-19, and the federal and state government on the fires have failed in eerily similar ways to do the number one thing that I think their job is, which is to protect our country and our citizens. And so I am more enthusiastic about voting now than ever before. I think we should vote Trump out because of it. And I think we should recall Governor Newsom because these failures are seminal failures. And if you fail at protecting Americans in these ways, you're going to continue to fail. To, to, to protect American Americans in these ways. And so I think I think it's always important to vote. But if you're somebody who's as angry as I am at seeing dead Americans and destroyed California and complete incompetence and inability to act to save our people and our country, I think you got to vote. I'm curious what your reaction is to all of that. Well, I'm curious to know what your what you think the genesis of, no, of the non-action was by those officials. Um, you know, why didn't Newsom? What what was behind Newsom's not? Uh, it, it, somebody must have suggested to him to to use the military. What 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 or you know what what was going on with these people that they they chose the course of action they took or or the or the inaction? You know, of course, I don't know. I wasn't in any of the conversations. I think it's very challenging. And I've never been a politician, so I don't it's hard for me to empathize with the specifics to take rapid, decisive, what some might call aggressive action in the face of a crisis. And to your point on the masks, I think the California got C-19 right in the beginning. And actually, it wasn't Newsom. Right. It was the leaders of San Mateo County and San Francisco County and Santa Cruz County. It was counties in northern California that were the first to shut down. It wasn't the governor. So I don't know why um, those things didn't happen more quickly. 
I do think that the, the president shutting down travel to China rapidly was smart. And I do think he should get credit for it. However, there's a shit ton of other stuff he didn't do after that. Right. And so I, I don't know if it's fear. I don't know if it's if it's stupidity. I don't know what it is, but it persists. That's the other thing. It's like once the problem was known, it continued to persist and the fires are still raging in California. And yes, we have a few military planes. That's nice. But that's very far from a full deployment of the most powerful resource at the United States' hands, which is the U.S. military. And the same was true of C-19. And so I don't know why there's that failure to act. I really, it, it boggles my mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if, if politicians have become or certain politicians are timid or they're too in love with their power that they're worried about making the tough call because they think that um, it's going to threaten their uh, their ability to get reelected. What I do know is it is disgusting to see doctors and nurses in Houston or New York or Florida or pick your spot begging for help, begging, crying on television. I think it's disgusting that we watch the, the, the leadership of our local fire heroes and our local law enforcement and in their daily press briefings talk about how they're under resourced. And so not only is our government failing the citizenry, they're failing our frontline heroes who are trying to save our lives by trying to uh, by forcing them to fight these situations with both arms and both feet tied between behind their backs. It's fucking disgusting. They're putting firefighters lives at risk. They're putting doctors and nurses lives at risk by not giving them the resources they need. It, it, it boggles my mind. Tell me who the tell me who the role model is for you of the of the politician that um who who was willing to to make the tough call? He went the unpopular tough call, and um, in your lifetime, who did you see do that? Hmm, that's a fascinating question. I think the answer would have to be uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Prime Minister of Canada when I was a young man. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was a kid, ha- to me, having him as Prime Minister was sort of like having James Bond as a Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. You know, he always had a flower in his lapel and he was mm-hmm. always dashing and handsome. Mm-hmm. And and there was a even as a as a kid, I could relate to his don't give a fuckitude. I remember very specifically when he was uh, he was campaigning and he was on a campaign train through town. And I forget what the issue was, but there was some controversial issue and there were a bunch of people protesting as his campaign train was coming through town. And he pulled up the, the blind on his room just halfway and he put up his middle finger as he drove by (laughs) and look i don't know that i would would agree with all of his policies but he he repatriated the constitution he did a lot to try to settle things down between the french and the english making french uh the national language uh equal to that of english he declared martial law in montreal when things got mental to settle everything down so there were multiple times where he took decisive action and he always did it with flair. He put Canada on the national stage, which I think made Canadians very proud. Um, and so, look, uh, he was a controversial leader. There were some things he got wrong for sure. But on balance, he had a, a savvy um, and, and a swagger and a decisiveness 
that I saw as a kid. And he was willing to give people the middle finger and, and let the consequences fall where they may. Yeah. And you just don't see that really today, at least not very much in our world. Yeah. He had a long-term vision for Canada too. He had that long-term vision for Canada. He wanted, he really wanted them to have a constitution. And even when it was unpopular among the provinces and unpopular sometimes in his own cabinet, he, he stuck to his guns about, uh, about getting the con the constitution ratified and um, pushing that forward. He was, yes. he had this hundred year, a hundred year vision of what he wanted for the country. Deep commitment yeah. to multiculturalism and immigration mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to trying to create a fair and equitable uh, playing field. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that, that has stuck with me. And at least in North America, I can't really think of one, that had the amount of uh, backbone and, and swagger since. Yeah. It would be nice to, um, to feel that our, our, our politicians had the good of their, their country and the good of their people and the safety of the, the people um, in mind and not their reelection. Yeah. And one of the things I do appreciate about Trump is he's got a lot of don't give a fuck attitude. He'll say whatever he wants. And right. That's cool. And we know what he's thinking at all times because he tweets it. And uh, I'm not a fan of a lot of his tweets, but uh, he's pretty transparent in yeah. that regard. Yeah. And so uh, if swagger matters, I think you got to give him credit for that. In spite mm -hmm. of the fact that for this election, I think he needs to he and his uh, team need to get thrown out because uh, I think with uh, approaching 200,000 dead Americans and clearly learned people, not myself, very learned people say there's no way to interpret what's happened to C-19 and everything since then and say that the federal government is not uh, largely at fault. I think their lack of response to uh, the issues yeah. of social justice and Black Lives Matter is horrible. So I, I just think, um, uh, sorry, folks, but you got to go. But I'm, I'm uh, equal opportunity. I mean, Newsom is a, is a Democrat, of course, and I know these are harsh words, but it's hard not to say empty suit. It's hard. Mm -hmm. Where have you been? Mm -hmm. Where have you been? California's burning. You're nowhere. Kind of pisses me off. As somebody that had to evacuate a whole bunch of my friends in the last two weeks, week and a half, and family, it's disgusting. So I'm pretty pissed off at both of them right now. Well, Christopher, maybe you should have him on. That might be an interesting... Well, they're both invited if they want. Uh -huh. I would happily have either one of them. There might be an interesting conversation. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be unlike any other conversation, I have a feeling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not exactly Chuck Todd or Sean Hannity. <laughs> um, Andy, is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap? Uh, no, I just want to encourage people to, um, if you're not feeling good about the present situation, I want you to just... Uh, Pick a point on the map, roll up your sleeves, pick a point and say, okay, I'm going to make that phone call. I'm going to call somebody up. I'm going to say, hey, can I volunteer with you guys? Can I get involved? I'm trying to figure out a way to make a difference because it's going to make you feel better. It's going to make you feel good. And that's who we are. We're, we're feel good voting, feelgoodvoting.org. If you want to support our work, we'd love to have you join, join the campfire and bring some, some wood to, for fuel to, to make this thing go. 
Maybe not this week in Santa Cruz, though. We got okay. plenty of uh, okay. Not this week. Sorry, that was a that was a that was a little bit of a northwest of a Seattle metaphor there. Fair enough, and uh, yeah. we'll make bring a bucket we'll, of water. I meant bring yeah. a bucket of water and exactly. uh, yeah, and a shovel, yeah. uh, and we'll make sure, yeah. Andy, that all of those links are in the show notes for this episode. All right, anything else, my friend? Okay, that's it. I appreciate appreciate the chance, uh, and um, thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I appreciate this time very much. All right. We would like to thank Andy Rue Forrest. Thanks for a fascinating and powerful conversation, Andy. Uh, to check out his organization, once again, it is feelgoodvoting.org. That's feelgoodvoting.org. I also want to thank my dear longtime friend, Catherine Aiken, for putting me in touch with Andy and enabling this legendary conversation. My friends at One Life Fully Lived are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check out the number one, lifefullylived.org. My friends at Atranet want to help you conquer your category. Visit atre.net and they will help you get set up with a legendary B2B website. My friends at Bottleneck are here to help scale you with the power of a distant assistant. Check out bottleneck.online. That's bottleneck.online. And Interacting with your employees has never become uh, never been more important than it is right now. My friends at Socrates.ai are the leading digital conversation hub, and they want to help make you employee awesome. Imagine being able to talk or text anything into your phone about a company HR issue and getting an answer back. That's Socrates.ai. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. And clearly, we get created in a studio that does contain nuts. Remember to vote and remember to encourage other people to vote. There are many who have died for the right to vote. Let's vote here, people. Support your local businesses and schools. Remember to buy John's Crazy Socks. Listen to Katie Lang. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Carson Sweet, CEO of Cloud Passage. Sorry, Carson. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please be, uh, please be safe. Be good to each other. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different.